Netanyahu has been crack cracking down on independent media in Israel for more than a decade now. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Diana Falzone, a senior reporter at Mediaite. And I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. For this week's episode, we are joined by Barack Ravid, a political reporter and Middle East expert for Axios. He covers foreign policy and the 2024 election. Barack also writes for Walla News in Israel and is the author of Trump's Peace, a book about the Trump administration, Israel, and the Abraham Accords. Recently, he joined CNN as a political and foreign policy analyst. We spoke with Barack about the Israel-Hamas war, the media landscape in Israel, and what comes next in the conflict. Here it is. Barack, thanks so much for coming on the interview. Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Let's start with some of your latest reporting. You just reported about a meeting between the United States and Israel in which Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, told Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet that the war in Gaza needs to transition to a, quote, lower intensity phase in a matter of weeks. Tell us about that meeting. I think it was um, uh, much more, even much more meaningful than I thought at the beginning because it was a whole day of, of meetings. And I think overall, Sullivan sat with Netanyahu in different formats, something like five hours, maybe more. Uh, it was really an opportunity to talk about not only uh, the war right now on the ground, but also like strategically where this thing is going. And I think that one of the issues that, uh, again, it is a disagreement between Israel and, and the US, but it's not a strategic one, it's a tactical one. And this is when is this war moving from, you know, what uh, Israeli officials call the high intensity uh, fighting or high intensity operations, uh, that this means three armored and infantry divisions in Gaza, tens of thousands of soldiers, hundreds of tanks, you name it. When are we moving from this? And because this is where we, what we've been seeing for the last more than a month now. When are we moving from this to low intensity fighting, low intensity operation, which means most of the soldiers get out of the cities in Gaza, go, uh, uh, you know, deploy, uh, redeploy around the border. And then every day, a uh, small force is going in on a very specific commando mission to try and get a Hamas leader or to try and, uh, I don't know, destroy a tunnel or destroy a headquarters or destroy a weapons cache, uh, something like that. So where are we moving from? the high intensity phase to the low intensity phase. And the US would love this to happen as soon as possible. Uh, and uh, the Americans told the Israelis that uh, they would rather this thing to happen before the end of the year, sometime you know between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, the Israelis want this to happen closer to the end of January. So we're, we're talking about basically an argument over three, three to four weeks, which is relatively tactical. The bigger argument and the bigger gap in disagreement right now is about the day after, meaning when you finish with the high intensity phase, what's going to happen in Gaza two months from now, six months from now, a year from now? Uh, and on that, I think both sides at the moment see things quite differently. Right. So it's, it's interesting to track the evolution of the Biden administration's views on this. They were initially after the horrors of October 7th, 
pretty unconditionally supportive of Israel. And two months later, we now have the result of that, which is this horrific bombing campaign. And, you know, no matter what source you cite, there are thousands of innocent people dead in the Gaza Strip, the vast majority of them women and children. And now we have the Biden administration putting some pressure on Israel to, to rein in the war. And also, it, as you note, some pressure on Israel to uh, explain what the, the aftermath looks like. How has that pressure been received by the Israeli government? Are they upset by the administration trying to pressure them into handling this war in a certain way? Or are they understanding that they need the United States on their side if they're going to prosecute this war in the way that they want to? So first, the, the, the answer is no doubt the latter, meaning uh, Joe Biden, has a lot of leverage on the Israeli government because he's giving the weapons, he's giving the backing in the UN, the US veto in the Security Council. Um, and more than everything, Joe Biden is the most popular politician in Israel right now. And you know what? I'll rephrase. Joe Biden is the most popular politician in Israel ever. Okay? Uh, and this gives him a lot of leverage. And Netanyahu knows it. Therefore, Netanyahu does not have a lot of room to maneuver when it comes to uh, what Joe Biden is asking. I, I'm not sure I agree with you, but that what we see now on the ground is the result of, you know, the backing that Joe Biden gave Israel. I, mean, I, I think that we would see, again, I don't know if we would have been now in, you know, after 60 days or if it was sooner. I don't know, it's hypothetical. But <clears throat> I think that uh, um, if anything, at least in the first few weeks of the war, um, I, I know it's, it sounds uh, you know, strange and you know, uh, might upset some people, but uh, things could have been much worse, hmm. okay? And, and I think that Biden managed to influence Israeli tactics uh, um, in the first few weeks of the war, especially how the ground invasion right by delaying uh, the like, pushing to delay the ground invasion delay delay not only delaying it at the end uh. the ground operation was done with at the beginning with uh, two uh, uh, infantry and armor divisions then a third one joined but the original idea was to do it with nine okay mm. and then there was idea to do it with six. And at the end, it happened with three. So I, I, know at the, I know it sounds strange to say because, you know, still there's a lot, huge damage in Gaza, thousands of people dead, uh, but it could have been worse. I, again, it, it, people have to realize that. Second, when it comes to uh, humanitarian aid into Gaza, uh, if not for Joe Biden, I'm not sure that uh, uh, we, would see, we would see what we see right now, which is still not enough. But Again, it could have been worse. Yeah. And the Israeli uh, cabinet just a few minutes ago approved a decision that completely shifted Israeli policy when it comes to uh, uh, the Israel's connection with the Gaza Strip. On October 7th, Israel decided to cut all ties with Gaza, not to let any water in, not to let any fuel in, not to let any... Uh, um, uh, any aid trucks in from Israeli territory, 
Okay, all the aid since October 7th came through Egypt. Today, Israel, for the first time since the war started, agreed to open a border crossing with Gaza to allow trucks in. This is a dramatic shift in policy, and <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't have happened if Israel did not uh, uh, need uh, to maintain uh, uh, Joe Biden's support. Mm. So uh, I think, uh, again, situation in Gaza is very bad, but it could have been worse. I want to talk about the media landscape in Israel. You worked as a reporter there for years. Could you give us a, a lay of the land of the media landscape there? There's broad ideological diversity among among news outlets. What what does the Israeli media look like? It's it's funny that you say that you say that because if you ask Netanyahu, he will tell you that all the um, all the Israeli media, almost all the Israeli media, is the same. They're all left wing. They're all liberals. They're all against him. They all, right. you know, you, you have the same stuff here. Right. Um, uh, um, and and you know, it's interesting because uh, I think that since the beginning of war, uh, what we saw is first, obviously, people watch television much more. It's pretty pretty obvious, but. What we saw is that there was some sort of a decline in the ratings of uh, a news channel, TV channel in Israel called Channel 14. And Channel 14 is um, the, the, the equivalent of One American News uh, here uh, in Israel. Uh, and I'm not, again, I'm not expressing any opinion. I'm just, it's a fact. It's, uh, it's really, it's very, it's very similar. Um, and um, the ratings of Channel 14 that backs Netanyahu uh, 100% Netanyahu mouthpiece. Um, right. To the point of almost ratings, being propaganda, I'd assume you'd, you'd say. Uh, you know, again, that's, a, that's an opinion. I, I, right. I, I don't want to, you know, it's like uh, I have my opinions about Channel 14, but it's not, it's not relevant. Factually, mm -hmm. it's right. a Netanyahu uh, mouthpiece. There's almost zero criticism of Netanyahu and his policies in the in the shows in the news shows in this uh, in this channel, which is the news shows, which is a channel that was established at the beginning as a channel for shows that deal almost like a religion channel, what we call here uh, like a Jewish tradition channel. That was supposed to be the and then it morphed into a uh, you know, almost 24-7 news channel and talk show, you know, political talk shows uh, um, that, you know, are, are all super conservative, uh, but it's not even super conservative. It's just, it's just pro-Netanyahu. It's not even, you know, because you will not see in this channel, for example, people who are right-wing but do not support Netanyahu. It's like you know, right. it's not, it's not uh, um, like the John Boltons of Israel will not appear there. Okay, okay. they will not get them on the air, um, and the ratings went down. Uh, it was, you know, uh, it's it, lately it changed a bit, but overall, not only the ratings but the share. Okay, the share went down. The share of the overall, uh, you know, uh, viewership. 
and it was very interesting because people sort of, I think, uh, uh, just didn't like or or less like the the sort of rhetoric uh, that they that that they saw there and wanted something else. Uh, and I think it it was a sign also through the you know ratings, a sign of sort of the political changes in Israel since this war started. Just what would that rhetoric be that they were seeing on Channel 14? I'll give you an example. Um, there was quite early in the war, uh, you know, it was an amazing television moment. A brother of one of the women who was, you know, badly wounded in the October 7th massacre, uh, she was at the hospital, her brother came to see her and he went on TV on channel 40 and you know you know how sometimes you you get somebody on the air because you think uh, um, you know you sort of like profile him and mm. you think that he's gonna say something and then he goes on the air he says something completely different okay and he just went on the air started attacking the government and Netanyahu and you know he's a brother of someone who was just wounded in the most horrific attack in Israel's history. And you saw how the uh, uh, the anchor didn't know what to do, you know? And at the end, he just basically ended the interview with him uh, because, you know, he, he, he didn't know what to do. I'll give you another example. Um, there are demonstrations of the families of the hostages, okay? Channel 14 almost does not cover it as if it doesn't exist. Um, you know, because it is all, most of those demonstrations are critical of the government. Um, it brings on the air only the relatives of uh, hostages that are not critical of the government. Okay, uh, it's again, it's not hundred percent, but it's almost okay. Uh, so you see it, you see it very well, and 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 it's. You know, it's sort of strange because it's, um, you know, the hostage issue is a huge story. You know, it's not like it's one of the biggest stories of the war. Uh, and to sort of not cover big parts of it is, you know, journalistically is, uh, you know, it's not done. Um, which, you know, which I think gives you an idea about what's going on there. Now, meanwhile, I want to talk about the uh, there there has been some we we reported it uh, over here. There's been some threats to crack down on the press in in Israel. You had uh, Israel's communication minister who called for a crackdown on on Haaretz, uh, where you uh, used to work, and he accused the paper of defeatist and false propaganda, taking a harmful line that undermines the goals of the war, which is never something you want to hear in wartime. A government saying about a news outlet. What do you think about uh, your your former paper's coverage of the Netanyahu government? And is there a climate of censorship in Israel from from the government since October seventh? Look, I think there are. Uh, you know, Netanyahu has been crack cracking down on independent media in Israel for more than a decade now. Okay, uh, his trial is partially because of his attempts to control the media. 
Okay, uh, that's a, a big part of his trial, um, and I think that a, a lot of things that the government has been trying to do uh, is to crack down on uh, uh, free speech uh, since the war started. Um, you know, under you know different uh, explanations. Um, and, you know, I'll give you an example. The Israeli police for weeks did not allow uh, um, a certain group of um, Arab citizens of Israel to demonstrate against the war. Um, it is still trying to, to prevent such demonstrations, which is, you know, uh, a huge violation of, of uh, uh, you know, freedoms and civil rights. Um, and and I, so I think that parts of the government are trying to do that. Um, can anybody sincerely, uh, um, you know, try and harm the press in Israel right now? Honestly, and I don't think so. Especially not this guy who's a buffoon, um, and you know everybody treats him like that. It's all for domestic consumption. Right. There's no in the current government you cannot pass if if they try to really pass such laws the government will uh, um, the unity government will will fall apart. Netanyahu will still be the prime minister with a full right wing government, but it I don't think he wants that mm. at the moment. So I don't think those things are going anywhere in the immediate term, and the Israeli press is I'm telling you. It is, uh, again, I have a lot of criticism about a lot of things in the Israeli press, but I, I think it is very, very hard hitting. And it's not, you know, sometimes I would rather see other things, but is the, is the Israeli media uh, speaking truth to power? Uh, definitely. Uh, is it doing it enough? Not always. Uh, but I don't think that the media landscape in Israel is such that is you know controlled by the government or anything like that just because it's just um you know it's just very very uh strong and i think that the public especially after what we had in the nine months before the war the big demonstrations against the constitutional coup that netanyahu was trying to to push i think it also uh, strengthened the uh, independent media, independent press in Israel very much. Uh, and so I think that when the war started, uh, the Israeli press was in a much stronger position than it's been, let's say, a year before. Um, but still, do, do I think that um, the Israeli press can be more uh, uh, critical, for example, about things that are happening in Gaza? No doubt, uh, I you know I don't think the Israeli media covers enough what's going on in Gaza. Uh, uh, definitely not in uh, prime time and not in prominent places within the news shows. Uh, I think that's a problem. Uh, is the Israeli media um, taking things, uh, or or at least uh, is it asking enough questions about the IDF? I would want to see more. Uh, it's asking a lot, but I would want to see more on certain issues, especially on issues of uh, civilian casualties. Um, but uh, but still, I think 
you know, there was just um, um, just the other day um, an issue of this uh, soldier, Israeli soldier, reserve soldier, who um, not in Gaza but in the West Bank went into a mosque and started singing Hanukkah songs uh, from uh, you know the from the mosque's uh, um, audio system, uh, and he was um, he was kicked out by the IDF, and he was kicked out because the Israeli media uh, covered the story quite extensively, and I think that this was sort of I was happy to see that this thing got a lot of coverage because it's not easy to you know in the middle of a war when 80% of the Israeli public supports the war and supports the military and all of that to, to run such stories. Also, the intelligence failure, uh, the amount of coverage that this issue got, okay, in the Israeli press um, was pretty amazing. Already in the first few days after the war, there already been stories reported about the intelligence failure and stories with like deep reporting about what happened behind the scenes uh, and including pointing fingers at people like the head of military intelligence and the head of Shin Bet and the IDF chief of staff. And this is, I'm talking to you about, it was in the first or, or sorry, second week of the war. So I think it is, uh, um, it's the, the Israeli media has been pretty hard hitting. Can it do more sometimes? It can, but overall, during the worst war Israel has had since its founding, you know, I'm not sure that any other uh, democratic uh, uh, country would have uh, um, such independent media in such a situation. It's been extremely difficult to get verified information from within the Gaza Strip. That's been a particularly contentious issue when it comes to the casualty numbers, which are provided by the Hamas-run Ministry of Health. How much credence do you, as a seasoned journalist, give to the information shared by the health ministry? You know, it's a great question. And, you know, we talked about it a lot also internally in Axios. And it's, you know, it's, it's a question. At the end of the day, I think that as journalists, you know, sometimes you report what you have. And in, a, it's a, and in the situation that we have in Gaza, where a terror group is in control of this uh, piece of land, and it's not only a terror group, but it's also the government. Mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day, that's what you have. I mean, what, what, what can you do? Okay. And I think it is clear to everybody, and it's been written in almost every article that was written about this, that, you know, those are the numbers that a government ministry that's controlled by Hamas is giving. So, you know, I think that, or at least I want to hope that the public that reads this is, you know, conscious enough of the situation and doesn't take everything face value. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think we shouldn't report the numbers because it's from the Hamas-run Ministry of Health. Those are the numbers we have. We report them. By the way, I, to, to you know, to be honest, I did not get any uh, number from the Israeli side that was dramatically different. You know, uh, every person, obviously, every person's life is 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 precious and important and everything. But it's not like the Israelis are saying, oh, you know, it's not eighteen thousand people who got killed. It's 8,000. 
That's not the case. You know, we're talking about, I don't know, you know, you know, pretty small numbers that differ, you know, so it's, it's, and, and I think what, what it, what I think should be reported more and is, I don't think was, is reported enough is that when you say 18,000 people, it doesn't mean that it's 80,000 people who are not involved in the fight. Okay. It's, uh, you know, at, at least Israeli estimates are there 7,000 of those killed are uh, uh, Hamas militants. Again, I don't know if that's the accurate number, but I'm sure it's not very far from that. Uh, so I think it is, it is something that while we need to, I think we need, we have to, because that's what we have. We have to report about what the, the numbers that are going out of uh, Gaza, even if it's from Hamas, we also need to, at the same time, say that that according to the Israelis, that, that and that number are people who were, uh, uh, you know, Hamas militants. Yeah, it's funny, as you know, you know, at the beginning of this, when we started getting the casualty numbers, I remember there was a lot of media, uh, there was a lot of media criticism I, that I thought was very tedious about cre crediting the Hamas-run health ministry for these numbers, and but they were the only numbers we had. So it was either we pretended yeah. that we didn't have any information or we reported on these numbers. And as you note, the I'll give you, I give you yeah. a, a, even, a, a, even a more contentious uh, example. Yeah. The, the, the bombing of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Okay, this was like a huge, and I understand why it was a huge issue because, you know, the first headlines of it were not accurate. Right. Okay, it's a fact. Mm -hmm. Nobody is denying. Okay. But at the end of the day, during war, under the fog of war, in the in the pace things are happening during a war, in the, you know, it's hard to cover it as a journalist. It's hard. I'm telling you, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. It's hard. Okay. Uh, so again, we can argue about this word in the headline, that word in the headline, but at, at the end of the day, the media reports what it has. It does not report what it doesn't have. Right. And, you know, it's it's almost like you know, people saying, "Why why don't you report this and that?" Yeah, we don't report it because we don't know if it's, we uh, don't know we, it. We don't know that, right? Right. Okay. Or, or or not that we don't know that we don't have any information that says that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and if you know, and, and by the way, the in the case of the hospital, you saw that within minutes, when there was more information, okay, the coverage changed. And I don't think, you know, there was this thing, uh, you know, that these took like headlines in the New York Times or I don't know where I can remember and saw how the, you know, the same event, the same incident had like four or five headlines. Of course, it has four or five headlines because we're in 2023. We're not in 1945 when the paper comes out once a day. Once a day. Um, and, you know, when things develop, things are also updated. Right. And I don't think the alternative is let's not report it and wait five hours until everything is clear and only then report it. If, if there's anyone who's suggesting that, then I don't think he's, he's living in the reality of 2023. Right. And how the media works. Yeah. You report what you what you can and, and you attribute it clearly to whoever's claiming it, especially in a conflict exactly. when you have to give attribution. Now, one of the exactly. issues that we've had in this conflict is access 
to Gaza. Your now colleague at CNN, Clarissa Ward, who's a great reporter, she's she's been on here before to talk about her reporting in Ukraine. She just delivered a really harrowing and vital dispatch from Gaza. She was able to access Gaza despite uh, a, a block on journalists from entering without uh, the IDF. Do you think that Israel should open up Gaza to foreign journalists? Uh, I think it's it's obvious that the answer is yes. I mean, there's no. I think it's clear. Um, would I? Uh, and, and you know, would I go if I'm a if I'm a journalist working for an international media outlet, and and if someone like that come to me and ask me, should I go to Gaza on my own, just you know, go to Rafah crossing, cross the border, and just hang out? I wouldn't do that. Not for you. <laughs> okay. I, I wouldn't do that. It's like, you know, it's not, it's, it's not like, you know, people go to Ukraine, uh, which is a huge country. This, we're talking about a very small piece of land when the fighting is super, super intense. This is very dangerous. Okay. Yep. I, you know, again, anybody, everyone makes their own decisions. And, uh, me for me personally you know i i think it's just uh uh, uh too dangerous i think with clarissa there, clarissa said she said there's nowhere nowhere is safe in there and like yeah ukraine you have, exactly like kiev where you can where it's there's no fighting but not in gaza exactly right and with clarissa she went to to southern gaza uh where the emiratis has put uh established a field hospital uh, and this is the, the area where, you know, is, again, it's not safe, but it's, it's you know, it's, let's say, less, in, less intense fighting, okay? Uh, and even that is super dangerous, okay? And, you know, obviously she, you know, she couldn't go northern from there because that's really a, you know, it's a suicide mission, uh, like go to Gaza City or to those places. It's, it's just... Uh, in my opinion, again, I, I, I don't recommend any uh, reporter uh, to do that at the moment. It's just, in my opinion, just far too dangerous. Yeah. And with that said, this war has been one of the bloodiest on record for journalists. More than 60 are reported to have been killed so far in the bombing. Is there concern in Israel about how that looks on the world stage? I think... It's, uh, again, I don't think anybody in Israel is happy that uh, 60 journalists uh, were, were killed, but, you know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, this, this war is much, much, much bigger than, uh, uh, than I think people, a lot of people understand for Israel, uh, for the average Israeli, Okay, I'm now talking about the average Israeli. 80% of Israelis support the war. Okay, 80%. The same number support kicking out Netanyahu once the war ends. <laughs> okay, which is, when you think about it, crazy. It's, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like that, that, yeah. that, so that there's so much support for, for the war, but not the leader who is doing the war. Exactly, because right. the leader who's doing the war is blamed for responsibility for the failure that led to the war. Okay, so, but for, for the average Israeli, what happened on October 7th is so 
uh, you know, it touched the, the most sensitive nerves in Israeli psyche, okay? And, you know, uh, uh, the historian Yuval Noah Harari, uh, that, you know, I don't know how, how, how many of our, the people watching this now know him, but uh, he's very famous in Israel. And he wrote an op-ed in the first few days of the war that I think encapsulated what the majority of Israelis feel. And he wrote that the state of Israel was not established, uh, or sorry, he wrote an article that encapsulated what majority of Israelis feel. And he wrote that the state of Israel was established so the Jews will not have to hide again in closets and basements in order not to get murdered. If you ask why Israel uh, went on this counteroffensive, that's the reason. That's the reason. It's Israel is a country that, you know, young kids learn from, I don't know, from elementary school that one of the lessons that they need to remember is, is never again, okay, not the second Holocaust, and always be able to defend yourself. So October 7th touched exactly that because it made so many Israelis feel that first, the never again happened and they were defenseless. And I think this is something that, so when you ask, you know, whether the Israeli government is concerned that it loses support around the world, it's, yeah, of course it's a concern, but the government right now, uh, if, it, if it stops, the, the public anger would be so huge that it's 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 you know it's hard to explain how big it's 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 going to be. Yeah. Now uh, to to wrap up here, I want to bring this back to what you were noting at the beginning about the the government's view of what comes next. And there have been a few pronouncements that we've had publicly from Israeli officials dismissing the idea of a two state solution. Where does that stand at this point? What is the Israeli government's view of what comes after the war? And, and, and is there any idea of what the alternative to a two-state solution would be right now? So uh, I'll start ask, answering your question through something you asked quite at the beginning <laughs> about Joe Biden and his support for Israel. Because it's very interesting because Joe Biden sort of created this uh, multi-layer uh, version there's no doubt about his support for Israel, okay? I think one of the, you know, obviously one of the most supportive pres US presidents in history, that's a fact. There's no doubt that he supports the goal of destroying Hamas and dismantling its military and governmental capabilities in Gaza, although he differs from Netanyahu about how to do it. But then the third layer is his approach to uh, Netanyahu's government, which is the most right-wing government in Israel's history that has in it racist, xenophobic, Jewish supremacist uh, politicians. And when it comes to that layer, Biden makes clear that, you know, while he supports the first two layers, the third layer is something completely different. So, you know, he differentiates between his support of Israel and his support of the government. 
And then, you know, again, going back to your last question, there is a huge gap between where the U.S. would want this to go. U.S., by the way, U.S., the um, Israel's allies in the region, Israel's allies in Europe, they all want this to, they all want to destroy Hamas, but they want it on the day after there will be a political process, that will be a wider context to this thing, that peace process will resume, peace talk between Israel and the Palestinians will resume. Division, uh, okay, division, nobody even, nobody's even talking about this happening tomorrow, but at least going back to division of a two-state solution, to back to the path that might lead there in a few years, not tomorrow. And the Israeli government is in a totally different place, okay? Uh, the policy of the Israeli government is not to strengthen the Palestinian Authority in order to go on a path that maybe, I don't know, in a decade would lead to a Palestinian state. The policy of the Israeli government is to destroy the Palestinian Authority so that the two-state solution will not be a viable solution, okay? The um, uh, big parts of the Israeli coalition, uh, ministers like Itamar Ben-Gvir, you know, an ultra-nationalist, Jewish supremacist, uh, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, uh, a racist who called to wipe out uh, and burn Palestinian villages in the West Bank. They're not going to support two-state solution. They want to kick out the Palestinians to Jordan. Right. Or those from Gaza, they want to kick them out to Egypt. You know, they... There are members of Likud, Netanyahu's party, who who are who are even sometimes uh, uh, being called moderates. Okay, that wrote op-eds that say, "Let's encourage Palestinians from Gaza to move to immigrate to Europe. We will pay them for the ticket." Okay, uh, you know. So when that, that's when those are the voices inside the Likud, not the radical right-wing parties, the Likud. So you see that there's a huge gap. And I think this is where there'll be a clash between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government, by the way, if it stays in power. Mm, right. The day after the war in Gaza is not only in Gaza, it's also in Israel. And I think there is a good chance that we'll see this, once the fighting moves to low intensity fighting, the politics will go to high intensity politics and there's huge anger as i said 80 percent of the israelis want netanyahu to resign it's 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 a number I, I i don't know if it's even reversible you know it's like you get to that point that's it you know it's, it's just a matter of time until you un, until you go home mm. so i think that it will be very interesting to watch israeli politics in the coming months the grassroots movement that demonstrated against the judicial overhaul, the constitutional coup that Netanyahu wanted to push uh, during the war, it morphed into a civil society movement to help those affected by the war in southern Gaza and in southern Israel and in northern Israel. Uh, you know, there are, there are, I think, more than 100,000 Israelis that were displaced because of the war. And all of those people that were displaced, believe me, they're pretty angry about the government. And I think that on the day after, which is not far away, we will see those demonstrations that we saw before the war over the Supreme Court. We'll see them 
but much bigger, much stronger, and with a different slogan, from a slogan of democracy to a slogan of Netanyahu needs to go. Rock Reed, thank you so much for coming on the interview. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And check out coverage of our conversation with Barack Ravid on Mediaite.com. <laughs>